0: Those who say religion has nothing to do with politics, said Mahatma Gandhi, do not know what religion is. Well, I'm not really sure how to put politics and religion together, but I can say when you do, it makes for good telling. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 5, Episode 5, Gush Emunim, The Block of the Faithful. There were many things within Israeli society which collapsed in the wake of the Yom Kippur War, some immediately and some over time. That's why the period following the war is known as Dal. Now, back in Season 4, Episode 20, I translated that world as the fiasco, a terrible situation in which the military and political leadership had failed the nation, which was really only saved by the sacrifice of its children. But I think when I look back at that translation of the fiasco, I was just trying to be too sophisticated. Really, it's simply the failure. And we spoke back then about how the Agronaut Commission set up post-war passed a limited judgment on the failures of the government. Prime Minister Golda Meir was eventually forced to resign, but her labor alignment still held the government. Moshe Dayan would no longer be defense minister, but he has a bright political future ahead. In a later episode... We'll trace the aftershocks on down through the political system, through the first Rabin government, all the way to Menachem Begin's revolution. But for now, I also want to say that the Agronot Commission passed a greater degree of judgment on Sahel, the Israeli army that is, than it did on the government. At least more and bigger heads were made to roll. But the real casualty of war in the military realm weren't the generals. It was the soldiers, more than two and a half thousand killed and countless wounded. And with them died the euphoric, dare I say, messianic sense of confidence with which Israeli society had been filled when it looked at the army. This loss of morale was only deepened by the extreme economic and social burdens the average citizen was made to bear in order to hold up the wall of Israeli military power following the 73 war. And we'll speak about the details of that problem in episodes to come. But you need to keep that collapse of easy confidence in the strength of our own hands in the back of your mind for what lies ahead. Because in this episode, I want to talk not about breakdowns in politics or failures of military nerve, or even economic burdens. I want to touch on a potential collapse of spirit. You know, the Zionist project has been driven by a pioneering spirit since its inception. In fact, it's not exaggeration to go all the way back to Abraham and say that he was the first pioneer. When God said, Lech lecha, Leave your home, your father's land, and everything you know, and go to the land which I will show you, what could be more of a pioneering motion than that. As an aside by the way, I've noticed in the media lately that uh, the indigenous discourse has begun to take over certain corners of the conversation about Israel. I gotta just throw my hat into the ring and say I don't buy it. Avraham didn't come from here. He explicitly came from over the river and of course that is an important part of our story all along. Frankly, I think that the whole indigenous discourse thing is actually a conceptual framework which belongs to a colonialist perspective and we're just stepping into a mess. But I digress. All that aside, in a more grounded sense, since the second Aliyah, 1904 to 1914, for those of you who've forgotten, the pioneer has been the heroic leadership model for first the Yishuv, the Jews living within the land of Israel and then Israeli society once the state was born. And not just the model, Actual pioneers through the conquest of labor, the Hebrew Renaissance of pioneering a living language, the army, the kibbutz movement, they have led the country. But in the wake of the Yom Kippur War, it wasn't just the institutions built by labor Zionism which were threatened with collapse. It was the pioneering spirit that created and upheld them. However, this isn't the first time the pioneering spirit seemed to be in question. In my live class happening every Sunday night, Never too late to sign up. Send me an email, ralphmikefoyer at gmail.com. I'm happy to share the details. But in that class this week, we spoke about a 1949 symposium convened by Prime Minister Ben-Gurion on the question of what he called the spiritual, cultural absorption of the masses of immigrants who had already begun to flood the country two weeks after its founding. And then, in that class, we focus on Ben-Gurion's argument with Martin Buber exposing the Prime Minister as the Messianic realist and the mystic as the Messianic idealist. No surprise there. But what matters to me at the moment is that both Ben-Gurion and Buber saw the danger of a massive influx of immigrants and refugees into a country which they deemed to be the product of pioneers, the spiritual, cultural danger of the pioneering spirit being drowned in that flood. And no matter how they envisioned the process absorption, both saw in it a critical role for a pioneering elite. This, by the way, is the form in which ben made his famous statement, I say that the Messiah has not yet come, and I pray that he will never come. The moment he arrives, he will cease to be the Messiah. Now, there are many ways to understand this perpetual process orientation to redemption, where the Messianic ideal should never be realized, but should remain on the horizon, drawing us ever onwards to more powerful futures. But no matter how you understand ben usage of the term, you can see that it requires a pioneering spirit. You must push forward if the ideal is ever retreating. Am Yisrael must be moving boldly forward in pursuit of that dream in order to bring redemption, never resting secure in its attainment, be they ever so vast or blessed. At the time, in forty-nine, Ben-Gurion was focused on how he was going to harness this inflow of humanity in a way which would not only shape them, but make them into shapers of the very vessel of state his generation had birthed. That pragmatism led him to focus on how state building should be done, rather than Buber's why should we build it. But Ben-Gurion's messianism helped him to believe that the act of building would itself be the vessel to bring about the redemption of the people he called the state a precious vessel one whose value is found in leave note to build and to be built through that process of building and by the way it worked the state of israel will be open to jewish immigration and in gathering of the exile. it will devote itself to developing the land for the good of all its inhabitants it will rest upon foundations of liberty, justice, and peace, as envisioned by the prophets of Israel. No matter what you may think of Ben-Gurion, labor Zionism, pioneers, etc., they, and the social model which they crafted and pursued, built a very strong vessel. I mean, I'm looking it out my window right now. Love it, hate it. You must be impressed by its power. And the question is, as always, what spirit fills that vessel? Now, It's interesting that at the end of his life, Ben-Gurion remained focused on the need for that pioneering ethos. In his last public address, given in 1971, the former prime minister said many things. But one that caught my attention when I was recently reading it was the following, where despite this process approach to the messianic ideal, the old man actually gave us a target. He says the state of Israel has two central objectives articulated in the Declaration of Independence in the form of special laws. So long as these laws have not been fully implemented, he says, the work of state is not complete. The first is the law of return, which embodies the objective of the ingathering of exiles. This law stipulates that it is not the state that confers upon a Jew the right to settle in the land. Rather, this right is inherently his by virtue of his Jewishness if only he wishes to participate in settling the land ben gurion goes on to say that the declaration of independence does indeed affirm that the state of israel will maintain complete equality of social political rights for all its citizens without regard to religion race or sex he's noting what seems to be a contradiction but then he says the jews right to return to the land is deemed to have preceded the founding of the state the source of this right is the historic bond never broken between the jews And their ancient land. In fact, he says that the law of return spells out the political principle under which the state of Israel was brought to life. The state is a vessel for settling the land, and it embodies our past. The second law, that Ben-Gurion identifies as the objective of the state, he says, stipulates the social direction of the state and the character with which we want the people in Israel to be endowed. It's the law for public education, and he quotes. The aim of public education is to ground the basic education the state provides in Israeli cultural values and scientific achievements, love of the motherland, and fidelity to the state of Israel and the people in Israel, in training in agricultural work, in settling and improving the land, aspiring to a society founded on liberty, equality, tolerance, mutual aid, and love of humanity. Now, we've spoken many times in the past about The great British historian Arnold Toynbee, who in his work, The Study of History, offers some wisdom and a little bit of a warning on how societies relate to their ancestors and their pioneers. In brief, what he says is societies that worship their past, that look to their ancestors as ideal models, have basically already left the stage of history. They're dead men walking. Only those who look forward, who venerate their pioneers, who see the future as the source of their power continue to live. So what pioneering spirit exactly was it that Ben-Gurion was seeking at the end of his life? He says our position in the world will be determined not only by our apparent material wealth or our military valor, but by the moral luster of our mission, our culture, and our society. Although there are no few shadows in our lives at present, among them some very dark shadows, he adds, we have cause enough to believe that it is within our power to be exceptional people. Now, in 1971, I can't say with confidence to what degree his belief may have been shared by Israeli society, but I can say that wherever it lay in 1971, by the end of 73, it was deeply shaken. The pioneering spirit was badly in need of people to pick up its call and of a vessel for its expression. There are certain institutions which leave an outsized mark on history. And the Merkaz Harav Yeshiva in Jerusalem happens to be one of them. It had very humble beginnings. Lacking even the funds to launch a full institution, Rav Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook instead gathered students into his own home to start in 1921. Now we met Rav Cook back in Season 2, Episode 26, We want a bit of his biography. But just know that even in his own time, the charisma, his vast Torah knowledge, his supreme legal authority, and the rich spiritual world which he shared made him a sacred personality. And his writings, particularly those that touch on questions of Torah, people, and land, serve as the basis for a powerful religious and political community down to this day. In fact, they are far more influential now than they ever were when Rav Kook was alive to teach them. And for full disclosure, I have to say that I'm a chassid of the writings of the Rav. Now, no matter how small the physical foundation, the central universal yeshiva, as Merkazerav is officially known, aspired to nothing less than the spiritual revitalization of the entire Jewish people. And if that sounds somewhat messianic in aspiration, well then, you're listening right. Rav Kook's teachings are rich, and, varied. and one of the reasons for their tremendous impact on Jewish life is, among other things, he opened a new phase of political theology for Jewish thought. In general, when we use the term political theology, it refers to the ways in which theological concepts or ways of thinking relate to politics. And in particular for Rav Kook, there were two primary questions. Theological concepts weighed on practical politics. The first was how we negotiate the tension between the universal and the particular. The root of the universal is clear. It's the knowledge that God is master of the world, that everything comes from one hand. And that universal message of God's oneness has always been the particular province of Am Yisrael since the beginning, at least as a people as Ralph Cook says, among the nations of the world, the disposition to universality exists only in the hearts of refined individuals. Klal Yisrael, the spiritual sum total of Israel, however, by its very nature fulfills the universality of being a light to the nations precisely through its existence as an organic collective. Did you hear it? The importance of the rebirth of the Jewish people as a sovereign nation in its homeland, a particular project, if there ever were one, is actually in its ability to fulfill a universalist vision. Now another key point for understanding Ralph Cook's Torah and its impact on the politics of our story ahead is the role that history plays in his eyes. The events of the world are certainly not random to Ralph Cook, nor is the stage of history some Darwinian proving ground on which only the fit survive. To Rav Cook, the historical drama is nothing less than an unfolding of divine consciousness within physical reality, with all of its conflict and contradiction being expressions of the awesome complexity and unity that creation struggles to manifest. And the rebuilding of Am Yisrael in Eretz Israel, the Jewish people within our land, is the inflection point in the process of redemption. Now, the grandeur of Rav Kook's historical vision was matched by the breadth of his aspirations for the Merkazah Rav Yeshiva. He said the goal of the Yeshiva is that the name of God, the name of the Torah, the name of Israel, and the name of the land of Israel would be sanctified in the world. And sanctification of the world is another critical aspect of Rav Kook's thought, one that we must understand, as opposed to the classic Christian and Western philosophical views. Ralph Cook saw the goal of godly creation not as the separation out of the sacred and the mundane, but rather as the cultivation of the mundane into a vessel for the emergence of the sacred. He says the holy should be grounded in the mundane. The mundane is the substance of the holy, while the holy serves as its form. The more solid the substance, the more solid the form. And ultimately, the stronger the state, the greater its potential for sanctity. And even deeper, he held that true mystic's vision that there is no separation. The mundane is only the external manifestation of the inner holy foundations that give it light. Now, despite the lofty and somewhat abstract rhetoric, this relationship between the sacred and the mundane actually lends itself, potentially at least, to a powerful political vision, one that can differ profoundly from the liberal democratic vision which rests on divorcing the two. In fact, the impact of Mir Kazarov on history is perhaps greatest as an incubator of the most profound political theology of our time, both in relation to the state of Israel, to the Jewish story, and frankly, to the world as a whole. Basically, the backbone of the vision is that redemption is a divine process, and thus inevitable, somewhat deterministic even. However, we, as the Jewish people, are partners in the unfolding of redemption. Our task is to build the worldly vessels which can express the sacred divine reality. And to Rav Kook, the secular Zionist movement was the first step in the revival first of Israel's national spirit, and then in the building of a vessel which could uphold its fullness and grandeur. And the deep synthesis of between the holy and the mundane, between the unfolding spiritual and the earthly political dimensions of reality, hinges on the union of Am Yisrael with Eretz Yisrael. And of course, Torah Yisrael. Rav Kook can only really be called a Zionist for the purposes of what we call broad historical taxonomy. He differed from secular Zionism in many ways. As a Western product, secular Zionism strove to sever nationality from religion in the political realm. It was fit to build the vessel, perhaps, but not really to sanctify it. Rav Kook's vision of redeemed politics was far more idealistic. As he says, the exile purified the nationality of Israel from its dross, refining it from the impure material elements that result in violence and physical conquest. The return of the Jewish people to political life is forthcoming because the time has come to practice a completely different kind of politics and of course this type of redemptive vision is never purely local as he says the building of the israelite nation will bring along with it the renewal of all the world's civilizations that's a potentially very inspiring vision and one which Rav cook brought to his students this idea of sanctifying the vessel of state he dreamed that merkazarov and the rabbinate which he helped to establish would be the first steps toward restoring not only the crown of Torah, but kingship in Israel. Now, for all his aspirations of sanctifying the state, it's important to remember that Rav Cook never actually saw it. He died in 1935, knowing Hitler's name, but nothing of the Holocaust, witnessing the gestation of Jewish politics, but not their birth. In fact, there's only one passage in which Rav Cook uses the term Midinat Yisrael, which is how we name the state of Israel today. And it perfectly expresses his messianic idealism, a vision which remained lofty because he was never forced to actually descend into the level of political theology that would amount to backing a particular party's policies in Knesset, a challenge which lays ahead. He says the state is not the highest joy of humanity. This can be said about a normal state whose value doesn't really rise higher than that of a large, mutual assistance society. Not so a state in whose existence is engraved the most supernal, idealistic content, which is, in truth, the highest joy of the individual. This state is our state, the state of Israel, the foundation of the throne of God in the world, whose entire desire is that God be one, and God's name one, which is, in truth, the highest joy. Now, for the first Years of the State of Israel. Leading religious Zionist rabbis drew upon Ralph Cook's approach to give religious legitimacy to the secular government of the State of Israel and the task of building the vessel for redemption. Back in season 4, specifically episodes 6 and 7, we spoke about the evolution of religious Zionist thought and its world up to and through the Six-Day War. It's worth going back there for a bit of review if you want to get the depth of this episode. But for now, just know that soon after Raul Cook's death, Mirkazarov basically slipped in stature. In fact, it barely managed to survive as an institution into the 60s, sometimes fewer than 20 students. And by the mid-60s, Raul Tzvi'ehur Cook, the only son of the Rav, was Rosh Hashiva and he began to attract a small but fervent following from among a group of graduates of the B'nai Akiva youth movement. They called themselves Gachelet. Gachelet is an acronym for Gush Chalutzei Lomed Torah. I would translate that as the, the block of the pioneers who, in learning Torah. Notice the pioneering language. Their initial goal was to stoke the fires of Torah learning within the religious Zionist community, fires which they felt had become somewhat dim. And not surprisingly, we find among the original members of Gachelet some of today's leading religious Zionist rabbis, Rav Chaim Druckman, Rav Moshe Levinger, Rav Eliezer Waldman, having absorbed all the Torah which they could from the students of Rav Kook still teaching out there in the world, and having their leadership aspirations basically rebuffed by both the B'nai Kiva movement and the National Religious Party, the members of Gachelet sought refuge in the Merkaz Harav Yeshiva. And here, they began to absorb Rav Kook's Torah through the lens of his son, and doing so to form a political vision which would actually shake the foundations of Israeli society and, frankly, even the world. If you've been listening for a while, do you remember? Where is our Hebron? Where is our Shem? our Jericho? Where? Have we forgotten them? Have we the right to give up even one grain of the land of Israel? Those were the words that Rav Tzvi Yehuda spoke on the night of Israeli Independence Day, 1967, only weeks before the Six-Day War. And we spoke back in Season 4 about how they impacted Hanan Porat and the first settlers that returned to Gush Etzion and Hebron. The students of Kazarov and visitors like Hanan Porat were immediately captivated, but what they felt to be Rav Tzvi Yehuda's prophetic vision. I mean, after all, only weeks from hearing these words, and against all rational calculus, Israel had returned to Hebron, Shechem, and Jericho. However, Hanan Parat's rebuilding of Khorat and even Rav Moshe Levinger's returning of Jews to Hebron, were not an attempt to offer a comprehensive political vision for the state. They were acts of inspired students, important though they may have been. And a large part of Rav Tsuhuda's genius was in his ability and his authority to bring his father's lofty teachings down to earth, to transform them from abstractions into actionable ideas, particularly in the realm of politics. He, after all, taught that the master of the universe has his own political agenda, according to which politics here are conducted. The state, for Rav Tsehura, was no longer his father's vision from afar, the foundation of the throne of God in the world. A vessel which does not yet exist, and therefore we're simply waiting for a sacred spirit to fill it. No, throughout Siuda, the state of Israel is divine. Not only must there be no retreat, but on the contrary, we shall conquer and liberate more and more, as in the spiritual, as in the physical sense. He goes on to say we're stronger than America, stronger than Russia, with all the troubles and delays. Our position in the world, the world of history, the cosmic world, is stronger and more secure in its timelessness than theirs. There are nations that know this, and there are nations of uncircumcised heart that do not know it. But they shall gradually come to know it. Heaven protect us from weakness and timidity. In our divine, world-encompassing undertaking, there is no room for retreat political visions, even driven by such powerful theology, have to negotiate the real world of politics, which means, in some sense, timing is everything. In October of 1973, as the Yom Kippur War raged, Prime Minister Golda Meir received a cryptic note. It read, The topic we want to discuss with you is too important to put into writing. And it was signed a group of women whose husbands have been called up and who want to do something for the country. Now, the letter came to the prime minister from one Devor Arziel of Yad Ben Yamin. And so it was to her that the prime minister's office reached out to set up a meeting. You know, for me, the very fact that this meeting took place tells you all you need to know about Israel in 1973. More of an extended family reunion than a well-organized state. I mean, in what other country? Would someone get a meeting with the Prime Minister from such a note during wartime? I mean, it was actually two weeks after the war's end, when Prime Minister Meir sat facing Devor Artiel and the companion, who she brought along for moral support. And the curiosity, which had led her to accept the invitation, quickly turned to astonishment when she heard why they'd come. We've come to suggest something which might give the people a glimmer of hope during these difficult times, said Artiel almost without an introduction, something that says we're still going forward. Jewish settlement in Shechem. Now, if you're unaware, Shechem is in the heart of the mountains of the Shomron, Samaria, as it's known, and is one of the largest Arab towns that you can find there. So you can understand that after a moment of stunned silence, the prime minister responded carefully, you're right, it really is ours, but the time to realize this is not ripe. She went on to suggest that perhaps the women whom Artziel represented would be willing to go to work toward boosting the morale of other women whose husbands were away at war. But these would-be pioneers were not to be easily dismissed. I mean, Golda Meir had been formed by her kibbutz experience, and they knew well they were speaking to a kindred soul. But you too did it once, they insisted. You went to settle in a place full of Arabs. Yes, but the times were different then. Now it's not relevant was the Prime Minister's response. The meeting ended quickly and seemingly without results. But in reality, it had one very definite outcome. Now, Goldmeir was well aware of how Hanan Prat had played upon Prime Minister Levi Eshkol's agricultural heartstrings to persuade him to back the rebuilding of Kfar Etzion by the children of the original settlers. And she also knew how Rav Moshe Levinger had masterfully played the elements of the Labour Party off one against another, in order to gain approval for the facts on the ground which he created in Hebron. But this was 1973, not 1968. And the feeling in Israeli society after the Yom Kippur War was almost diametrically opposed to that following 1967. Therefore, it was clear to Prime Minister Meir that she had bigger issues with which to grapple. That was one result of the meeting. But it was also equally clear to the leadership of the budding settlement movement, that it was useless to look to the government to lead in the next phase of history. In five short years, the passion of the gahelic group and the activism of people like Hanan Porat and Rav Levinger had begun to coalesce into the outlines of a political movement, driven, of course, by the teachings of Rav Tzvi Yehuda. Now, that great victory of 67 had driven the rabbi to double down on the deterministic element within his father's historical vision, that which was carrying us inexorably toward redemption. As he said, part of this redemption is the conquest and settlement of the land. This is dictated by divine politics, and no earthly politics can supersede it. Those are words fueled by the euphoria of the summer of 67. But as the winter of 73 arrived and his students began to return to the yeshiva from the front, everyone carried with them a feeling of demoralization that reflected the wave sweeping the country. More than anything else, it seemed to be the direction that even the army was moving. I mean, after all, the government might call them separation of forces agreements, but to many who had fought on the front lines and to the families of those whose blood was left behind, the path ahead felt more like retreat than separation. And the students of Harav certainly knew the expression from the Gemara and nisa," that failure begins with running away. Their fear was that once Israel pulled back from the lands conquered in 73, it was only a matter of time before those taken in 67 were put on the table. Unless, that is, there were effects on the ground which could point in a different direction. What is the purpose of this group's being here? We intend to go back home. The land is waiting for us for 2,000 years. It's about time to to get into it. And what do you call settle. Do you have permission from the government to settle? Permission from the government? I don't think that a Jew needs permission from anyone. A series of gatherings took place in the rebuilt Kfar Etzion. Hanan Porat was there, along, of course, with Rav Levinger and the rabbis of the Gahelic group, members of Knesset from the National Religious Party were in attendance, and Rav Tzvi blessing hovered over them all. The result was Gush Emunim, literally known as the Block of the Faithful. It was what we might call a political activist group, originally conceived as a body within the National Religious Party, whose mission was, quote, to project a new old message with existing tools and patterns in order to awaken the people of Israel toward full Zionist fulfillment in act and spirit. Now, if you listen closely, you can hear many things, especially the effort to sanctify the vessel rather than break it. Now, new old is alt noi, a clear reference to Herzl's original Zionist vision that he laid out in his novel, alt Noi Land, the old new land. And that commitment to existing tools and patterns meant that this was not a questioning of legitimacy of the state or even a lack of respect for it. I mean, hadn't Ratsuyura taught them that the state itself was holy? Their aim was to get it back on track. And it was Hanan Perat who declared that their mission should be redemption Zionism rather than the old political Zionist vision of safe haven Zionism. And in saying this, he was really echoing his teacher, Rav Yehuda, who said, the great movement of the Israelite nation does not originate in seeking a safe haven with legal protection against anti-Semitism. Rather, it results from the vitality of its life, as well as its national self-revival, which freely comes from within. The positive self-wish to return to the land of its life, to its God, to itself. And True to the father cook as well as the son, Gush Emunim's charter was universal as well as particular, calling for action, quote, in recognition that the source of vision is the heritage and roots of Judaism and that its purpose is the full redemption of the people of Israel and the whole world. Now, that may sound a little bit above the heads of a bunch of yeshiva students with knitted kippahs, but read the news. They certainly have succeeded in making waves around the world over the last five decades. In the beginning, Gushemunim imagined it would confine itself to two types of activities. Practically, right now, they were organizing mass demonstrations against the separation of forces agreements on the Golan Heights. In particular, they were opposed to the retreat from the town of Kunetra that had been conquered by the IDF in the war. And on a larger political scale, they were focused on establishing themselves as the leading voice of national vision within the political sphere of Israel. The Yom Kippur War, by the way, was the first in which substantial numbers of Orthodox Jews fought within regular combat units, and they were easily identified by their classic knitted kippot, coming mainly from the recently created yeshivot hezder, these yeshivot which combined serious Torah learning with serious army service. And that participation did two things. It gave the people who would become the backbone of Gush Emunim a new self-confidence, and in fact, a vision of themselves as people who could replace the old secular labor kibbutznik model of leadership. And it also gave them a greater legitimacy within wider Israeli society. Nothing conferred that like being brothers in arms. Finally, the clarity of vision, which Rav Tzvi Yehuda's teachings allowed them to project, made them ripe to lead amidst the atmosphere of psychological confusion, feeling Israeli society in the wake of the Yom Kippur War. That collapse of spirit created a vacuum into which they could step. Now, it's astonishing how quickly the Gush Emunim was able to eclipse the movement for the whole land of Israel. We spoke about them back in a previous episode, the secular nationalist group that had been founded in the wake of the Six-Day War, associated with the old guard labor movement. But the Gushmanim was not only more religious and more dynamic, they quickly proved themselves to be far more effective in politics. One of their first steps was to challenge the older, more moderate leadership of the National Religious Party, hoping to transform the flagship Religious Zionist Party from an unquestioning partner of labor alignment, as it had been since before the state was born, into a visionary leader on questions of territory, Zionism, and nationalist vision, which it did spend quite a bit of time doing before it collapsed in recent times. When Prime Minister Golda Meir's second government, elected post-war and frankly brief on the political scene, promised to call new elections before any decision was made regarding handing over territories to Israel's Arab neighbors, This was seen as a victory for Gush and their first of many. But with all their understanding of politics and their lofty vision and idealism, this remained an activist movement. Dvorah Artiel had come to Prime Minister Meir not with some broad, grand scheme, but with a very specific physical plan, the return of masses of Jews to the mountains of the Shomron, the heart of the ancient kingdom of Israel. Representatives of Gush Emunim continued to meet with government officials, including Defense Minister Shimon Peres, in hopes of gaining official approval to move into the Shomron. But after six months of futile efforts, and after breaking their official ties with the National Religious Party, the core group decided that this old, new vision could no longer wait. It was time to go up. On June 5th, 1974, a caravan left the settlement of Mechola in the Jordan Valley and headed west into the mountains of Shomron. Nearly one hundred men and women were packed into old cars and dusty pickup trucks, and among them were Rosh Hashiva of Merkaz Arav, Rav Tzvi and member of Knesset Ariel Sharon, hero of the recent Yom Kippur war. Despite the lack of government approval for their activity, the settlement group had given the Israeli Defense Forces advance warning of their plan. Nevertheless, the decision to leave from Echola and travel east to west to arrive in the mountains surprised the army. Their destination was Hawara, a mountaintop around two and a half miles south of the city of Shchem. Except they didn't call it that. The new old name, which these settlers had chosen, was Elon Moreh, the name of Avraham's first settling place after he crossed the Jordan River. And, not by coincidence, the location in where God had promised him to your descendants will I give this land. Within moments of arrival, the noise of pile drivers filled the air. And before long, those fence stakes were joined by barbed wire. Sixteen tents were set up within the perimeter, and the Israeli flag was raised. Rabbi wandered from one person to the next, mostly his students, reciting the Shehecheyano blessing the expression of gratitude to God for having been allowed to live to see this day. Ariel Sharon stood up in the middle and delivered an impromptu lecture on the strategic value of the mountaintop and why settling it was essential to Israel's security. Redemption seemed to fill the air and anything felt possible until, that is, the army arrived. And though Rabzai Yehuda pleaded with the soldiers to move slowly, their orders were to be swift and merciless, the tents were torn down, the fence destroyed, the flag lowered, and the settlers removed. Some refused to go and passively resisted, being dragged away. Hanan Parat, still recovering from injuries sustained in the recent war, was beaten. And when a dozen soldiers pounced on Yehuda Etzion, who I mention now because we need to tell his story later, a hulking bear of a man jumped in to scatter them. It was none, no one else than Ariel Sharon. Arik, you? cried one of the soldiers. When you ordered me to cross the Suez, I followed you through hellfire and didn't ask questions. Now here I got an order. Do I obey it or not? True to form, Shrone didn't hesitate. Disobey, he said. You can't obey an order like this. It's an immoral command. But Arik was no longer in charge. His hero's status wasn't enough to stop the operation. And while some of the soldiers stood aside and wept, others followed orders. Except that none dared lay a hand on Rav Tzvi Yehuda. As they approached, he pulled open his black coat. If you wish, take a machine gun and kill me, he said, repeating it twice in case they hadn't heard. And then he added a message which has echoed down to our days in very real political terms. Just as it's impossible to force me to eat pork and desecrate the Shabbat, you won't force me to move from here. As the eviction continued, the rabbi went from one officer to the next, warning, you'll be remembered forever for the disgrace of it. A perpetual disgrace, a Jewish army evicting settlers from the land of Israel. When dark finally fell, Ratzviel was alone on the hilltop. His students awaited him, bruised and exhausted, in the army transports below. And at last, Commander Yonefrat went to the rabbi and took his hand gently, leading him to Ariel Sharon's car. Shon himself was taking full advantage of his parliamentary immunity, moving from bus to bus, giving encouragement to the settlers, and admonishing the soldiers. As a major lined his men up in formal ranks to depart the mountaintop, he called out, For things like this, you don't line up your men. That's for war. From here we ought to go out in mourning with our heads bowed. Now, it may have seemed like a defeat, but in reality, this was only the opening round of a war, one declared weeks before by Rav viewhuda, when he was speaking to his students once again on Israeli Independence Day. And he said the obligation, you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, as from Numbers 33.53, requires that the land be entirely in Jewish hands, that to this land, with all of its borders, we are to be committed to the extent of self-sacrifice in case of coercion, whether on the part of Gentiles or, God forbid, on the part of Jews. We must all be killed rather than transgress. As far as Judea and Samaria and the Golan Heights are concerned, this shall not happen without a war. I was asked whether I'm willing to engage in a civil war. I don't want to get involved in terminology, and I'm not going to name this thing, but it is a fact. This is not going to work. This is not going to happen without a war over our dead bodies. There's no way that either the Gentiles or political entanglement of our own can make it work. Strong words. And even though his students would later point to the fact that Rav Tzu Yehuda did not choose to die on that hilltop, but rather meant that our commitment to success should be absolute, you should know today that the war has not ended. For information's sake, Elon Moray has nearly 2,000 inhabitants right now, and people are still trying to tear down. So like I said, this isn't the end. It's only the beginning. I want to thank a few folks before I sign off. I want to thank all the folks that give their hard earned money to make this show possible, to keep it free and widely available. I want to ask you to join them right now. You can go to my website, jewishstory.co. You'll see a button in the upper right hand corner that says be a patron. You can click on that to give a little bit of per podcast support. Or you can send me an email, robmikefoyer at gmail.com, and I'll share with you the information how you can dedicate a show. If you want to make a one time payment? PayPal, robmikefoyer at gmail.com. Send me direct message on Facebook, and I'll be in touch with you as well. I also want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com, creating a center for global spirituality in the heart of Judea. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S at org.il, for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Ralph Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.